Hey guys, in this episode, you're going to hear something special. For one, this is an interview with someone special, but also the circumstances in which this interview was recorded were special. So why did I say that my guest today was special? Well, it's because she is none other than Dr. Corey Probst, wellness director at the Diet Doc, which is ran by the legendary Dr. Joe Klemzewski. She is an expert in diet and nutrition, and also the mental side of all of this, which is one of the reasons I was so excited to have her on. Basically, what she does is she helps people to bulletproof their mindsets to succeed in their fitness journey, be it weight loss, contest prep, or other areas of fitness, or other areas of life for that matter. To quote a section from her bio on the Diet Docs website, Corey's approach is as diverse as her background. She specializes in a blend of coaching and therapeutic modalities, including cognitive behavioral, positive psychology, mindfulness, and strengths-based experimental techniques, all geared towards integrative self-determination. Her rich education and experience create an unmatched expertise in physical and mental training and mind-body integration, optimal athletic performance, and overall well-being. Corey has guided top-level athletes towards optimizing their strategic plans for success, as well as individuals working towards empowerment, control, and approach of curious emergence into all areas of life. Good stuff, isn't it? In this episode, we talked about basically how and why emotional and specifically unhealthy emotional relationship with food develops in physique sports, what the psychological and emotional triggers are, and what we can do about all of these things to empower ourselves and make us less vulnerable to stresses of all kinds. So we cover a lot of the topics around binge eating, self-starvation or other such behaviors, A lot of these topics that are not many people willing to talk about, but yet they are so critical to manage. So if you're someone or know someone who is routinely using food as a means to self-medicate at times of trouble or uncertainty, this show will definitely help out. Now, let's quickly talk about the not-so-good stuff and the unique circumstances of this interview. For one, this interview took place in two iterations because we suffered from some technical issues the first time around, so we scheduled a second call and Corey was kind enough to come on for a second time. Unfortunately, the second time around, we again ran into some technical issues, which only revealed themselves after the recording was finished. So to my great shock, the second part of the recording was essentially unusable from all the echo that accompanied the track. So I had to resort to using the indirectly recorded stuff from my external mic. So when that part comes in the audio, I'll warn you ahead so you can turn up the volume a little so that you can pick out the important details mentioned. So I apologize for some of the not so high quality audio at times, but I do highly encourage you guys to listen closely because Corey really dropped some true golden nuggets. So without further ado, let's bring on Dr. Corey Probst. So the first question I would like to ask is, obviously, now you're someone who is helping out athletes and physique competitors to develop mental tools for success, and many times you're helping them out with emotional eating and disordered eating kind of issues, and as far as I know, you yourself have struggled with similar issues at some point and went through a period of struggles around your relationship with food and eating, And in particular, I would like to go back to a specific moment in your life when you had 
a not so nice encounter with a certain engineer boy <laughs> uh, who you were dating, I think, uh, who said something not so nice to you. I I'm sure you know what I mean, but listeners have probably no idea what I'm talking about. So would you mind sharing this experience, first of all? So I think it's it's a lot more layered than it just being this one circumstance that kind of catapulted me into starving myself. Um, but yeah, I can remember it very vividly. You know, I'm sitting in a bean bag on my dorm room floor. Uh, this was my probably, I think it was my freshman year. And this was a guy I had a crush on. Um, a year or two older than me uh, in college and uh, and it's funny because I can in my mind he's kind of standing above me and looking down at me and that to me is it's meaningful he's standing above me and he says to me so you know he asked me like what I'm majoring in and I said exercise physiology and he looks down at me and he's like well shouldn't exercise physiologists be thinner? Um, and I remember in that moment just feeling like I was completely, like I was kicked in the gut. Uh, and I, you know, I admittedly had gained probably 10 or 15 pounds my first year of college, like a lot of people do, late night eating, you know, food's not as healthy, lots of pizza. And, uh, and at the same time, though, was completely unconcerned about it. It was not even a blip on the radar for me. Uh, you know, through high school, I was not ever worried about my weight. I started training my freshman year. I was 14 years old. Um, when I first started lifting weights, absolutely loved it. And so body image, not even a thing until that time, until that time. Then I started paying very, very close attention to how much I was eating, what I was eating, like how I fit in my clothes, looking at other people and, you know, looking at other bodies and doing a lot of comparison. And so, you know, as I'm trying to get this boy's attention and thinking that, well, if he likes a thinner girl, um, that's how I'm going to have to be in order to be acceptable to him. Um, it got out of hand, way, way, way out of hand. Um, so, like I said, I think that looking back, and of course we have horrible memories, every time we bring up something that's happened in our past, like we tell it in a different way, it's integrated into our memories in a different way, circumstances change, but, you know, I grew up in a household with a single mom, uh, who was very attentive and did the best she can, she could. Um, but parents were divorced. And, you know, when we look at the impact of a girl growing up without a strong, like, father figure, um, it's really, really impactful and meaningful. And the things that I didn't necessarily get by um, not having a dad, you know, those strong messages of, um, of strength and never being told like you're beautiful and things like that that I think probably really affected me growing up you know I'm not thinking about it then but that that probably really had an impact in terms of 
um, well, my level of comfort with emotion and, you know, my mom is very, very strong woman, very, very independent. And I have those traits and raising two girls on her own. Like she's, she wants to show that strength and that sense of that, that everything is taken care of. And so she's not going to fall apart. She's not going to cry very much. You know, she's not going to show those things. Um, and so there's a, those are the messages that I took away as a kid and as an adolescent. And that's foundationally a lot of what we're dealing with with disordered eating is not necessarily having the emotional intelligence to be able to show emotion, embrace emotion, accept emotion, and really perceive it as a part of being human and to roll through it and... Um, feel comfortable being uncomfortable i guess is a good way to put it right right thank you thank you Corey, for for sharing this and just before we go dive deeper into this topic and, and talk about what kind of issues the people who generally come to you face i'd like to ask a super philosophical question of you and what does this experience with this guy mean to you now after many years well i think that you know, I've reflected upon it so many times as I recovered from the disordered eating. Um, that became something I knew that I had to do is to begin to reflect and not ignore, to sit with it and ask myself some very difficult questions to learn about why I do what I do and why I react the way that I do and what biases I'm carrying into different situations. And, you know, in, in that instance, it was about wanting to feel like I belonged, mm. that I was, that I could experience the sense of connection with this person. I mean, we can look at it very superficially. It's a cute boy, and I had a crush on him, and he said that to me, and then I ended up with an eating disorder. But it's so much more than that. Yeah. Um, when we know that connection and a sense of belonging is a basic psychological need of every single human being on the planet, no matter your race, no matter your creed, no matter where you live, no matter your age, it it just makes sense that I and growing up the way that I did my entire history that I would react in such a fashion that I would try to find a way to feel more comfortable when that sense of connection was fractured. So when I look back on it now, it's, it's, it's integrated. I understand it. It makes sense. I don't feel bad about it. Like I can talk about it and not get emotional about it, you know, and you, and you see that with a lot of people who've go, gone through something traumatic, the more and more they reflect upon it and talk about it, the less emotional it becomes because it's just a part of their lives now and they can make sense of it. Right, right. Now, would you be able to give an idea of just how common it actually is that people involved with physique sports have some kind of disordered eating or just an issue with emotional eating? Well, I think a diagnosable eating disorder is something very different than emotional eating. 
Um, if we're talking physique athletes, I think if we were to do like an anecdotal sort of a study and just do a survey and ask how many of you have had an emotional eating episode or a binge eating episode while you've been prepping for a competition, um, the vast majority of people would say, oh yeah, absolutely, that's happened to me. Um, so it's very common, but when you look at the the situation and the circumstances that physique athletes are in, you know, most of them, unfortunately, are eating a very, very rigid, inflexible sort of a diet. Um, and on top of that, they are being coached by individuals who have very little experience and not just in physiology and what's happening in the body. So they can't explain to the person why they're being asked to eat a certain way or not eat certain foods or whatever. To be able to provide that very safe, trusting, nurturing, growth-oriented environment in which will stimulate a sense of energy and vitality and motivation and persistence and consistency, all of the things that we each want and desire when we're pursuing a goal that's important to us, right? Uh, when we look at the general population and we look at individuals who are just dieting for fat loss and for health purposes, what we see is that emotional eating is one of the number one barriers to successful weight loss and successful maintenance of that weight loss. So in the research that I did for my dissertation, you know, I was looking at the perceived threats to a weight-related goal that dieters or individuals who were maintaining uh, experienced during their journey, during their, their, weight, their, their pursuits. Um, and I looked at those from the standpoint of self-determination theory and the three basic psychological needs to see if and how each one of the threats, be it, you know, I'm going to a barbecue and there's going to be all of these tempting foods, or, you know, I just got in an argument with my partner and now I want to put my face in a jar of peanut butter. Um, so looking at all types of different threats and how and if they were related to a sense of fractured connection and belonging, um, dissatisfied autonomy, which is a sense of choice in certain situations, or lack of a feeling of competence. So a feeling of, okay, I feel like I have the skills to manage this situation effectively. And what I found was that every single one of the threats Number one, um, for the most part, we're not even related to the weight-related goal in the first place. So it was like my dog was sick, and that was causing me to feel anxious because I felt helpless that I couldn't do anything. That's not related to weight. It's not related to food. It's not related to diet. And yet the emotions attached to it, were causing these individuals to feel so uncomfortable that they felt like they needed to fix it or get away from it or avoid it in some way, and food was the mechanism. Um, so, one, emotional eating and the emotions themselves were 
one of the primary threats to these individuals being able to manage that goal effectively, right? And then two, what we saw was that all of the emotional threats when you looked at them were in some way related to a dissatisfied sense of autonomy, competence, or connection. But the interesting thing is, is that, you know, most people, whether you're a physique athlete or you're a general population person who just wants to be as healthy and lean as possible and have the best energy, so many individuals, they don't have the knowledge about what these needs are at a psychological level, what's guiding them and being able to stay energetic and motivated and persistent during their goals. So being able to teach individuals to look at their behaviors, their emotions, their thoughts, their actions from the perspective of autonomy, choice, competence, sense of effectiveness, and connection, feeling like I belong without having to change myself in any way, like unconditional belonging, like I have my tribe, teaching individuals how to look at their the structure of their lives and every context of their lives from those three needs at a, at a basic level, I think can have a significant impact on them. Like we talked about in the beginning, how do I experience now? Helping them to integrate what's going on and why am I acting this way and how come one moment I can feel like I'm, you know, my motivation's in the toilet and then the next day or moment I'm like, I'm living on, on a high. And these three needs, when you, you look at your behavior and your life from that perspective, they explain so much. Are you saying that the way people approach their problems and their emotional problems in life in general has a lot more to do with these kind of unhealthy eating behaviors than the actual fat loss goal in sight or the fact that they are actually dieting and they're more hungry than usual? Yes, in a very broad general sense. When we don't have the skill or the comfort level or the competence or a sense of intelligence in being able to move through our lives with resilience, with openness, with a sense of curiosity, and we're oftentimes operating from an old story, an old script, an old message, an old bias um, that we haven't really reflected upon and we're not aware of, yes. Take any goal and we have these default behaviors. Like we have an operating system. All of us have an operating system um, that's going to drive us in a certain way unless we become aware of it and can begin to reflect upon it and ask ourselves the question like, why am I acting this way? Why am I doing this? What's, what, what is driving this behavior? Am I, am I actively engaged in doing this for a specific reason? Um, and what is the reason? Or is it, has it just become so automatic and, and habitual that I do it all the time? So yeah, in my research, yes, what we saw 
when an individual doesn't have the capacity to, to be with their emotion and reflect upon it and be intelligent about it, they're going to look for a way to change it or shift it or avoid it or distract themselves from it. And the way that they do it is a lot of times by using food or not using food. If we're talking just any eating disorder or not using food because it's the same thing. When you starve yourself, you're focused on the food. So that's distracting you from the emotion. When you binge eat, you're focused on the food. And so you're distracting yourself from the emotion. It's just a different way of doing it. It's a different method. All right, guys. So now brace yourselves because the audio quality at this point, well, will kind of go to shit. Unfortunately, the recording system was messing with us and I got back a horribly sounding echoey thing when I downloaded the audio file. So the best thing I could do is resort to use the audio that was indirectly recorded by my microphone. So I would recommend that you use headphones at this time and turn up the audio because it will be hard to pick out what Corey is saying from now on, although it's well worth it, trust me. So. She keeps dropping straight knowledge bombs here and you'll be a richer version of yourself after this interview. So take a deep breath, turn up your audio and get ready for the remainder of this interview. Right. Now, first first of all, I, I just have to say that I'm so glad that you're acknowledging that it's so easy to binge on peanut butter. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I don't know I don't know why it's such a staple food in every bodybuilding contest diet. Because for me, it's at least it's so easy to overeat on that stuff. But secondly, um, a practical question here. So for example, one thing that I I implemented for myself, because um, because I did have these sort of emotional eating attacks. It it wasn't really pathological, but it did occur from time to time in the past. And what I did was actually a concept that I read in the book, The Power of Habit. I don't know if you, you've read that book. But basically, the, the suggestion there was whenever you're, uh, you have a habit that you want to get rid of, just note down the time of day that that habit occurs and the circumstances in which it occurs. And I, I just started to take notes like, okay, it's 11.30 and I'm in the shop and I just walked past the peanut butter section and I really wanted to put one in my in my basket. And by doing this, it actually, later, it kind of enabled me to work out certain strategies that I can implement in these situations. So is this something like that you implement something similar off with your clients or it's a completely different approach that you take? No, it's very similar. Because what you're doing, what I love, is you getting very curious about your own behavior and you're beginning to approach it like a scientist so it's almost like you're taking the bird's eye view of the behavior itself instead of staying kind of locked inside of it you're setting it outside of yourself and then you're able to watch it so there's a little bit of what's called like disidentification so you, you know in in words you would call it like instead of saying I'm anxious, it's, this is anxiety. Mm. So look at it from a little bit of a different perspective. You're, you're separating yourself from the behavior a little bit so you can take a look at it and gather the data, gather the information. It's like 
having an individual write down their food. Until they write down their food, they don't actually know what they're eating or how much they're eating of it. So you're gathering data, and then you have to learn a lot from that information. Because initially, I may ask a client, like, when do you binge? Well, I binge every night. Do you really binge every night? And if you binge every night, then what is occurring earlier in the day that's getting you to that place where you can no longer handle what you're feeling that much that a binge has to happen? So yes, I have them gather the information from the day, even the day before, who were you with, where were you, what were you doing, so that they can begin to gather that data and begin to understand what the patterns are. Because it may, you know, oftentimes, Abel, it has nothing to do with food. It has zero to do with food, and I think that's the mistake that people make. It has everything to do with the circumstances. It may have something to do with the people in your life, and then how they are influencing how you're feeling with that. Now, the, the one thing, too, that I think you know, we're, we're in this society of now it's like I, I, F, and I am. It fits your macros, flexible dieting. I think people have taken it to an I, I, F, Y, M, eat whatever the heck you want. Crappy food if it fits your macros. And that's just not healthy. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, I think that you can decide... Like, if you know that peanut butter is just, every time you're around it, it, it has this pull, it would be okay for you to say, you know what, I'm just not going to buy it for a while. I am choosing not to have it around me. It's just like noticing that there's this person in your life that is really tough brings you down, you know, sabotages your efforts, criticizes you. Is that someone you're going to continue hanging around with? A lot of people would because they're afraid of what the reaction would be if they gave that person up. But we're talking about an inanimate object here. We're talking about peanut butter. You say, you know what, I don't like the effect that, that this relationship with peanut butter is having on me. I am choosing to not purchase it for a while. Instead of, I have to not eat it, or I can't eat it, because in our brains, then that creates the desire for it, when you choose not to have it. Like, I choose not to go down the chip or the chip or cracker aisle at the grocery store. I choose not to, because every time I do, I want to buy pita chips, and I want to buy salty, crunchy things. And when salty, crunchy things are in front of me, I have less willpower to not consume them. I don't want to feel that way. So when I have the ability, when it's under my control, I actively choose to avoid those foods. And that's not dysfunctional. I think that's aware and it's deliberate and it's conscious. Because you look at any other context, a friend, a job, you know, an environment, 
if it doesn't have a positive impact on you, if you notice that it has this negative energy around it, you're probably not going to go there. So why do we think that we have to be able to incorporate every food in order to be healthy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that is... Um, uh, it's funny you bring that up because I actually just had this real realization the other day of like... I've been watching these YouTube videos of guys who, you know, like these YOLO guys who get ripped while eating all kinds of fun stuff. And I did this in the past, like I would fit in a whole bar of chocolate basically into my macros every day. And I'm like, why, why am I doing it? Like, why am I going through so much trouble to make this happen? I'm, I'm missing out on like two kilograms of strawberries in exchange for this bar of chocolate. Like, why am I making this so much harder for myself? But Actually, one thing that I wanted to bring up that I've heard from you uh, earlier and, and I, I thought it was so cool is that you mentioned that the way we think about stress, like we label something stress and that kind of just by perceiving it as this super threatful and, and scary thing, it just makes things so much worse than they should be. And, and I, I noticed this on myself, like for example, I read this study that like sleep deprivation leads to like increased appetite and poor decision making and I noticed this that by having a bad night of sleep I almost gave myself the license to just be miserable for the rest of the day instead of just kind of reinterpreting the whole thing so would you elaborate on this concept if you know what I mean? You know there was actually a study on sleep specifically and I wish I could remember where it was with the author but they did show that the effects of a night of like four to five hours of sleep um, were not nearly as negative when the person didn't know that they only got four or five hours of sleep and mm. thought they had slept for a much longer period of time. Right. So perception, it really is reality. Like if we perceive that something is not negative, if we perceive that something is just normal, if we perceive that something is is positive and, and is as it should be, we act differently. We do. And stress in general, you know, it depends on what type of stress. There's positive stress. It's called you stress. There's mm. dis stress and there's you stress. A lot of stresses in our lives don't have a negative impact on us until we decide that they do. So, you know, I do have clients too who are like, um, especially some who have started using, I don't have my Fitbit on right now, and I didn't have one for a long time, but I have clients who use their Fitbits and they track their sleep on it. Oh, and good. prior to using a Fitbit, they thought they were sleeping just fine. Like, my sleep is good. And until they started using their Fitbit, even if they were getting like, still getting seven or eight hours, you know, the recommended amount of sleep, um, now they're looking at their Fitbit and they're seeing that they're waking up eight or nine or 10 times per night. And then their brains go to, gosh, I must be really restless in my sleep. I'm not getting restorative sleep anymore. And now they feel more tired. <laughs> I mean, it's anecdotal. Like, but there are plenty of studies that show the, the way in which we perceive a situation impacts, you know, how we're going to, how we're going to act and behave around it. Um, power of suggestion 
power of even like stereotypes. You take an individual in a testing situation, for example, and say it's an African American kid, and they've been told that they are just not as smart as white kids, which is not true at all. It's not true at all. They will do more poorly on the test if mm. they've been told that. If they are, you know, though, and and those, gosh, those stereotypes, and they're almost unconscious um, biases that we have. We go into certain situations with these biases and beliefs that a lot of times we're not even aware of, but impact how we're going to interact with people in the world. Um, and I think it's it's super important, you know, coming back to awareness, like you getting a sense for how you perceive stress, in what situations stress, and you know, quote unquote, stress is present for you, um, can reveal a lot of those biases or beliefs that you have that are kind of operating in the background and impacting how you behave. It's like those old stories from the way that we grew up that maybe we aren't necessarily familiar with, but we know are impacting us. When we grow up, there are so many different influences and, and we attach meaning to the ways that our caregivers, you know, interacted with us. And gosh, we could talk forever about this stuff, Abel. Like I just had an example recently with a conversation um, that I had with my boyfriend and an interaction that we had and kind of, and you know, I, I went back in my mind to how I know like he, he was raised and um, the meanings that he attached the way that his parents, you know, grew with him or not with him. And I was like, wow, I totally, the way that I just talked to him took him all the way back to childhood where he's feeling like he wants to shut down and tangent perhaps but i really it all relates it really does and so us becoming aware of all of kind of the different facets of what makes us who we are the beliefs we have and kind of our our operating system what our defaults are and um and then asking in the beginning of our call why am I doing what I'm doing? <laughs> yeah. And just going through the motions and, and keeping on, keeping on, and continuing to do what we're doing because we've always done it, actually asking the question, like, why am I doing this? Why am I engaging? It really serves a purpose they have before. It may have been really good for me then when I was eight. made sense then, but now I'm 28 and 38. And it is not helping at all. Oh yeah, yeah, and 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 just um, not not to ride like beat beat this horse to death, but like just just going back to this binge eating uh thing, like, can you like do you have a any kind of explanation for this phenomenon which is so overwhelmingly common, but it doesn't make rationally or intuitively it doesn't make any sense when you know this this phenomenon of someone going over their macros perhaps by a little bit and instead of stopping there 
they're just throwing damage on top of damage and then they just lose their mind and, and go on an all-out binge. It, this phenomenon intuitively wouldn't make any sense, yet it happens all the time. What in this situation? So I think when someone, if, when someone is actively in a binge, they're not in a place where they're thinking through their actions and, you know, the prefrontal cortex is like, okay, let's reason through this. Let's actually pay attention to why we're engaging in this behavior and do you actually need that peanut butter and what are the calories that it's providing for you? Like, we can talk ourselves through situations when we're not in threat mode, right? Yeah. Someone who's actually binging is in threat mode. It's just get out of the situation, feel better, like you're unsafe right now, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and it binge is going to fix it. Fight, flight, or freeze. Right? Yeah. Someone who is going to engage in, you tend towards chaos or rigidity in a, in a chaos, in a, a threat sort of situation. Someone who's more rigid in a threat situation typically tends toward starving themselves. Someone who is more chaotic, like, run, get out of here, is going to tend towards the binge eating type of behavior. What you're talking about in terms of, okay, I just went over my macros, to them, and, and then they end up just like saying, what the hell, doesn't matter, like I'll just eat the whole bag or whatever it is. For a person who engages in that type of behavior, they already have this distorted type of thinking where it has to be this way or it's completely wrong. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. It's very black and white. It's all or nothing. And so if they can't be perfect, then they've already screwed up. It doesn't matter. Then it doesn't matter. So you're really in a catch-22. When you operate from a very black and white perspective, you're either on or you're not. And you went over your macros, you're not, so I'm just going to be continuing to be not until tomorrow morning, and then I'll be on again. Yeah. And the brain likes closure. Our minds like closure. They like certainty. So... A person who's already gone over their macros, like they've crossed the line, now they're already over in this line, so I'm just going to continue being in this line. This is certain right now. And I'm going to wake up in the morning because, oh yeah, I had a goal, and that behavior doesn't align with my goal, so the behavior over here does align with my goal, so now I'm going to be back over here to be on. Certainty. Whether the brain likes certainty or not, so most of life is uncertain. <laughs> oh, There's yeah. a huge area you have to learn to be comfortable with. And so, again, we'll come back to emotion. If I'm operating intellectually in this very black and white manner, it's all or nothing, right? And yeah. I grew up, now I'm uncomfortable. Now I'm thinking, what's wrong with me? Now I'm thinking, how come I can't do this? Now I'm thinking, I just sabotage myself again. And I want to feel better. What's the easiest way? Well, 
and already screwing up, it's much, much more difficult then to go back and say, okay, we're good. We're all right. We went a little bit over. It's not the end of the world. That takes a lot more effort cognitively the way that we think. That takes a lot more cognitive effort than continuing to eat does to feel better. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. I, I can relate to that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, what, what, like you said, it's kind of counterintuitive. Like, it doesn't make any, you know, this, this isn't intuitive. Like, it doesn't make any sense. If we can play the action forward, what we would see is that the effort that it's going to take on the back end of that binge is a hell of a lot more than the effort we would expend after that small little blip on the radar food overage mistake in our macros, right? Yeah. Awesome, awesome, Corey. Uh, that's 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 really um, quite fascinating. And and now um, I, I believe over two two episodes. Uh, I, I think we successfully shared some really valuable knowledge. I guess my final question to you, you're someone who um, you've achieved a lot in your own life, you've gone through a PhD, you're working with a lot of clients and, and you're dealing with a lot of behavior change. So I'd be very curious, what is one or more if you'd like, but principle by which you like to live your life and, and you believe by living, by which living a life amounts to a very productive and successful and happy life? Yeah, I love this question. Um, and it's something that I work on with my clients too, because I think I work with a lot of entrepreneurs as well. Mm. And while they, they put business plans together and they put business missions and visions together, they rarely have looked at their life mission and vision and purpose. Mm. And to me, um, you know, I, I have some visions, but my, my approach to life, and I think that that is one of the number one things that all of us should ask ourselves. How do I want to approach my life? Not what do I want to do with my life, although that's a good question too, but the how are we going to do all that stuff? The how to me is really, really important. So personally, I approach my life with curious compassion because I've been in a place where I could not offer myself forgiveness. I could not offer myself grace. It was very black and white. It was all or nothing. It had to be done this way or that way. And it was all based on perfection. And I was not happy. I was not happy in my life. Um, and then secondarily, the curious component, because that opened me up to other possibilities. It removes the necessity for certainty and puts me in a place of understanding that there are so many different alternatives. And when I get, when I can feel myself kind of getting like target locked on one view or one perception, the reminder that I'm living a curiously compassionate life allows me to expand my view, put on different lenses, and see that 
every other person on this planet would probably be looking at this situation much differently. So my view is not the right view all the time. Right. So again, it comes back to that aspect of approaching it a little bit like a scientist, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I love that. Well, Corey, thanks so much for um, doing this again with me and sharing a lot of your knowledge. Uh, yeah, I guess just uh, maybe tell where people can find you and uh, yeah, if they want to get in contact. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed the second part of this interview as well even with the not so high quality sound, but hopefully you could still pick out some of the important details. I'm kind of planning to transcribe this interview and do a voiceover so that everybody can hear every minor detail that was mentioned in this podcast. If you're interested in something like that, then please let me know. So that was it for now. Please check out the Diet Doc where Corey is publishing pretty frequently about topics related to mindset to success and behavior change. And if you'd like to get a consultation with them where they take an integrated approach and give you all kinds of tools to succeed besides just a diet plan, you can go ahead and do that at dietdoc.com. So thank you guys for hanging around. If you like this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. It would help out a lot and subscribe to support this show to grow and make it possible to get more amazing people on here. So thank you guys.